The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view. with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm talking to you from my office and studio here in Middle Village in the borough of Queens in New York City. This is the first program in our summer season that will run through the end of, uh, actually through the end of September into October. I want to thank each of you for listening to the show because more and more of you are listening. We do now have the number one show on the Voice America Business uh, Channel, so we're very glad for all of you. Uh, I want to also thank our sponsors for this show. Now, for the new season, our sponsors for the first hour of our show uh, will be Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Solidon Gold Corp., Joshua Capital, Richfield Ventures, Golden Minerals, Clifton Star, Silvercrest, Duncan Park Holdings, and Swiss America. As full sponsors, Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Solidon Gold, Dasha, and Richfield will also be sponsors of the second hour as well. In addition uh, to those full sponsors, the second hour we will have uh, Brigus Gold, Everton Resources, Millrock Resources, and Golden Hope Mines. All a number of very, very interesting companies, and all of our sponsors for this season are involved with gold in one way or another. Most of our sponsors are exploring for it, developing a gold mining project or two, or actually producing gold in the case of well, a few of the companies on our list are actually in production now. Uh, but we also have a sponsor 
a different sponsor, that's Swiss America Corporation. That's a precious metals dealer that can help you put silver and gold bullion into your portfolio, the metals themselves. Certainly a very basic uh, asset category to have in your portfolio, one that I personally have as well. I think it's very important to build around uh, the safest of all assets, gold and silver. Uh, we will have Swiss American Corporation with us in the near future, and they will be talking about some very interesting ways that you can invest in gold and silver. Well, I'm really happy to have gold mining companies as sponsors for this show because I think we are now facing the buying opportunity of a lifetime for gold mining shares. That is not to say we won't have some gut-wrenching declines at times in the gold bullion industry and uh, in, the, in, the bull, in the gold markets as well as the gold share markets. In fact, there is some reason to be thinking, I think there's some reason to think that we may now be uh, witnessing a, a little soft patch in the gold and silver markets. But, you know, the problem with trying to time these things when you're in a secular bull market like we're in now with gold and silver is that sometimes you miss getting back in. So probably for the most part, it's good if you believe that we're in a long-term bull market. Just buy and hold gold and silver and, and perhaps add to your position on weakness like we're seeing at the present time. Well, the thing that's really encouraging to me and why I'm so bullish about gold mining companies, I've been sharing this idea with you the last few weeks, but the real essence of it is that when you have a credit contraction like we're seeing in the United States and actually globally, we're seeing credit contract. We're seeing when that happens, historically when that's happened, the real price of gold rises very dramatically. Think back to what happened after the Lehman Brothers collapse. You know, the gold price has gone up a little bit, but the real price of gold, in terms of what an ounce of gold will buy, has risen very dramatically. So we've seen, and actually, during the time of the decline in the nominal price of gold, we saw about a 22% decline from July of 2008 through September of 2008, 22% decline in the gold price. But what an ounce of gold would buy actually rose 20% during that time, and we like to measure that in terms of the Rogers Raw Materials Fund. But really, we've seen gold rise in its purchasing power from 15% of the Rogers Raw Material Fund to 44% of the Rogers Raw Material Fund. And that is very, very bullish for gold mining companies because it means the materials, the cost, the labor, everything that goes into producing the gold has gone down relative to the price of gold. And so the profit margins are rising for gold mining companies. Profits are strong. But as Bob Hoy has pointed out, there is nothing new about this. This is true as he's traced back through 300 years of history, this being the sixth major credit contraction in 300 years. Each and every one of those before this one, the same thing has happened. The real price of gold, what an ounce of gold will buy, rises very dramatically. So actually, I think that gold is in a much bigger bull market than even a lot of the gold bulls recognize because of the real purchasing power of gold rising so dramatically. We are uh, looking at, uh, oh, I should also mention that in the last quarter, according to the Wall Street Journal, the leading sector of all the companies um, in, that are tracked by the Wall Street Journal, all the sec sectors, was the gold mining sector. They gained 19.3%, the gold producers that the Wall Street Journal uh, follows. Now, that compares to the second best sector during the quarter, and that was real estate investment trust for residential real estate. That was up 4.3%. So I think we're in a sweet spot for gold mining companies. The big guys, that's the guys that the Wall Street Journal reports on, they're doing very well. The profits are very strong, and I think they're going to continue to get stronger this year. But those companies aren't particularly good at finding gold. 
they just are not. Their corporate, um, their corporate environment is such that they want to maximize profits quarter by quarter, so they're not taking the risk to sink holes into the ground. They don't have the mentality and the sort of um, risk aversion uh, or the risk-loving capability of going out and doing the kinds of things that are necessary. That's where the junior mining companies come in. That's where the companies that are sponsors to this show come in. Those are companies that are really good at finding gold and, de- and making new deposits, new discoveries. And when you're invested in a small mining company that makes a big, di- a big discovery, it doesn't even have to be that large, let's say a million-ounce discovery, for a small-cap company, that can be a really big deal. It can send your stock rising by 10 or 20-fold 20, 20 in some cases. So I'm very pleased to have the companies that we have and to have uh, as sponsors for this show and to have them coming on to the show to talk to us on an ongoing basis. Well, we're going to have in just a few minutes Dan Proctor. He's the chief geologist with Ashburton Ventures. This is a company that is on Jay's watch list. And all the companies that are on Jay's watch list, which you can go to uh, to discover, jayswatchlist.com, are companies that are on my radar screen. They're companies that could very well find their way into my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Well, I'm really looking forward to talking to Dan because that company has a historical resource of some 477,000 ounces of gold. They are in the process now of upgrading that, doing the, the work they need to do to complete their 43101 resource calculation. But here's the thing about this company. It's got a market cap of $2.7 million. That's all, $2.7 million. Very few people know about this story. Nobody's buying the stock, obviously. But I believe they've got a chance of proving up something that's very real and significant, and it could be one of those companies that can find a million-ounce deposit or bigger and really do extremely well for companies. The stock is selling at around $0.06 right now. So that's the kind of company I really like to look at. The other end of the spectrum, though, towards the other end of the spectrum, I should say, we uh, have a company like Crocodile Gold. And uh, Chen Lin is not with us uh, today, uh, but I did speak with Chen earlier today. And Chen brought out the fact that Crocodile Gold, which is a sponsor of this show, and they'll be on our show in another week or two, Crocodile Gold actually uh, is up about 6% or so today in a day when the gold shares really got hit really hard, earlier in the day at least. So Crocodile is up on some pretty good news. They just reported they... Uh, produced more than 8,000 ounces of gold uh, for the first quarter that they were in commercial production. And the other good news that's coming by way of Crocodile is that the Australians, uh, thankfully, and I think uh, they were very smart to do so, at least the population was, uh, they demanded a rollback in the taxes they were going to tax the mining companies because they understood that taxing these uh, these companies that actually create wealth and create jobs would be a foolish thing to do. So there's several things going for Crocodile Gold, one of my favorite companies, one that I own some shares of. It is in my newsletter, one I like a lot. And we'll be talking to them over the next uh, couple of weeks as well. Mark Weaver will be with us. He's my partner on Jay's watch list, and Roger Wiegan will also be with us. Um, we're going to talk to Mark a little bit about Paramount Gold and Silver. It's a company that's on Jay's watch list as well. And... Uh, I'm also going to be talking uh, to um, I'm going to be talking to a company that is involved in the solar business later on uh, later on in the show uh, today as well. Well, I was going to talk to you. I only have about a minute left in this first segment. I just wanted to outline the dire condition that our equity markets are in. I uh, I believe that we are facing one of the most devastating declines in the equity markets that we have seen, and it will rival anything that our grandparents saw in the 1930s, unfortunately. I hope I'm wrong about this, but this is the way I see it. 
the economy is in dire straits. We are in big trouble. And how did we get in this position? How did we get where we are right now? Well, we're going to also turn to our special guest this week a little later. Uh, it's James Perloff, of, um, an author that I think will have some great insights to tell you about. He'll be coming with us at a half past the hour. We've got to go to break right now, but don't go away because we're going to be right back with Dan Proctor of Ashburton Ventures. Don't go away. I'll be right back. business you'll find the experts here voice america business network parkerville gold mines bgm on the tsx.v is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic caribou gold fields in british columbia parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares covering the 60 kilometer long by 20 kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past producing mines and two of parkerville's own proposed open pit mines currently in the permitting process parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the qr mine and 900 ton per day qr mill Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity a successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed by applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000 while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Dasha Capital is offering the world's first and only corporate stockpile of rare earth minerals, giving investors the ability to participate in the physical ownership of these critical elements without the associated mining and execution risk. Rare earth elements are used in many industries, from aerospace and automotive to high-tech and green-tech. Dasha Capital is listed on the TSX.V in Toronto under the symbol DAC and on the OTCQX in the U.S. under symbol DCHAF. Please visit www.dashacapital.com to learn more. That's D-A-C-H-A-Capital.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. 
to turning hard times into good times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. We were supposed to have uh, Dan Proctor with us. He uh, has not shown up yet. He's not called in, so uh, we don't have Dan with us. I would like to, uh, since Dan is not with us, I would like to invite you to call in with any sort of questions or comments you might have. Uh, you can call in the guest number to call in, um, or the number that you can call in, actually. Uh, Toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Well, since Dan isn't here, let me just mention a little bit about uh, his company, um, it's Ashburton Ventures. It trades on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol ABR. Uh, there's 45 million shares outstanding. As I mentioned in the first segment of today's show, it's selling at only $0.06. Cents. That gives it a market cap of $2.7 million. Uh, included in that $45 million, or 45 million share outstanding number is uh, 9.6 million shares that were recently issued at $0.06. Cents. Each of those shares carries with it a $0.10 warrant, uh, I think a two-year warrant, actually. So you can see when companies are selling at these low prices how much um, dilution that can come into play. However, that said, a $2.7 million market cap, a company with uh, a historical resource of 477,000 ounces with, the, with considerable upside potential. And one of the things I wanted to talk to Dan about was the, uh, to try to get a better sense of was the exploration potential for this to, be, to grow into a much bigger prospect. And, of course, we want to outline the 477,000 ounces of gold is really a historical resource. It's not up to the standards of a National Instrument 43101 that the Canadians require before they can report it. So uh, before they can report it as a legitimate resource, uh, but nonetheless, uh, most of the historical work was done, uh, and this I believe was done by a fairly major company. Most of the historical work, um, you know, is worth looking at, and and very often is is every bit as good as the 43101 uh, numbers. We can't say that's the case, but here's the point: a 2.7 million dollar, a 2.7 million dollar market cap, 477 thousand ounces of gold. If this comes up to 43-101, and if it starts to look like an economically viable deposit in, the, in Nevada, if it's an open-pit, heap-leachable, uh, viable, economically viable deposit, and if they can expand that to a million ounces or so, then all of a sudden this little $2.7 million market cap could become, and I'm not saying it will, but it could become a $27 million market cap, and you know you could you could see your share price go up very very rapidly very very significantly now when i say could one of the philosophies that i employ in my newsletter is uh i underscore the word could and i say you know you don't want to back up the truck and put everything you have into one of these companies you want to diversify you want to have a number of different uh, kinds of uh, different junior mining companies in your portfolio 
And even with senior mining companies, I don't think you should own just one. I think you should have several because unlike owning gold and silver, which our friends from Swiss America will help us do, unlike owning gold and silver, when you own the shares, you're taking on you're taking on production risk. You're taking on business risk. It's a risk that's significantly greater than owning the bullion itself. That said, that's why you're able many times to have enormous returns. It's not unusual in the junior mining sector to see a 10-bagger with these junior mining companies when they make discoveries. And what we're seeing now, we definitely are going to see a lot more of it, is when the major companies are turning big profits, they're going to need to replace their reserves, uh, the ones that they've just depleted, uh, to produce those profits. And they're going to be going down the food chain looking for the juniors, looking for a way to, to do extremely well. On our, among our, um, among, among our, um, our sponsors, we have a number of companies that are, uh, that are doing well, that are in production. We mentioned Crocodile Gold. Uh, we've got uh, Apollo Gold, which is now Brigus, is in production. There's a whole lot of other companies that are, uh, Silvercrest is on the verge of uh, becoming a producer. There's a whole lot of these companies that are evolving into production status, and I think this is a most exciting time uh, for the gold mining sector. Now, that said, when we look at the situation in the overall market, I think things are not looking good at all. I think what we're looking at is a bear market to rival the bear markets. In fact, I think a bear market that could be far worse than the bear market that our grandparents lived through in the 1930s. I would like to take the time now, since uh, uh, since Dan has not shown up uh, to be on our show, I would like to take the time now to just um, mention some of the insights that Dr. Robert McHugh passed along to his readers over the weekend. We've had Dr. McHugh on our show at various times, and he's talked about this cataclysmic nation-changing event that he believes lies ahead of us in, in all likelihood, a major change in which America, as we've known it, will not survive, uh, and that we will see a country that is that is so far socialistic that we won't recognize America. I think already you can see the direction of this with, uh, with all manner of, of uh, government takeovers of the economy and trying to fix everything with intervention of the markets instead of letting the markets speak and letting the markets e- efficiently allocate resources. We've got government stepping in trying to, well, at least saying they're trying to make things better. Um, and let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, that's their intent. But I can tell you, as sure as I'm sitting here, that I think the direction we're headed is not the right direction in terms of freedom and prosperity. In any event, uh, Dr. Robert McHugh uh, wrote this weekend, uh, and I'm going to just read part of what he said, uh, quote, Where will the bottom arrive for the decline from April 26th? Probably not anytime soon, nor near where we sit this weekend. While there will be minor corrective bounces along the way, we see the decline for this kickoff leg for wave C down dropping further. There are no bullish divergences in our advanced decline line indicators this weekend. Nothing that suggests a bottom is imminent. In fact, we just got another bear market confirmation from Dow, uh, from Dow Theory Friday where both trannies and the industrials hit new lower closing lows. And the 50-day moving average crossed below the 200-day moving average in the S&P 500, the death cross. Very bearish, he says. Yes, markets are oversold. However, some of the greatest declines in market history occurred at oversold levels. The declines from April 2010 is a stock market crash that nobody is recognizing with trillions of dollars of wealth being wiped out. 
Uh, he goes on to say, the, un- the unemployment news was abysmal once again on Friday, July 2nd. The Labor Department reported that non-farm payrolls fell 125,000 in June. However, this figure was artificially adjusted positively by including a guess that businesses created 147,000 new jobs in June. Jobs that were not counted were imagined by the BLS. Now, if we back out that fictitious figure we see that 272,000 non-farm payroll jobs were actually lost in June. More and more people are unemployed. Then, consider that, of the jobs created in June, uh, 21,000 were temporarily held jobs and 17,000 were government jobs. Where is the private sector's job growth? Uh, doesn't It doesn't exist, uh, Robert says. In fact, at a time of the year when construction should be on the upswing, 22,000 construction jobs were lost in June. We also learned that 225,000 census worker jobs were terminated in June. The economy is in deep trouble. Why? Because the central planners forgot about the American household, forgot about their needs for cash, failed to pass a massive tax income tax rebate, failed to repeal property taxes, failed to grease the primary spending pump, the American consumer. Now we are getting the second and most dangerous phase of the bear market, a catastrophic wave fee down. It is just starting. He went on to say, remember, America needs to create 150,000 jobs per month just to keep pace with population growth. June's unemployment or June's employment figures fell woefully short once again. We sit at a fascinating juncture, Robert says this weekend. Stocks are either about to crash or are starting a three- to five-day counter-trend rally that will lead to a plunge once, uh, once the rally finishes. Our top Elliott Wave labeling is looking for a waterfall decline soon. We show a few alternative variations in charts this weekend, but in all cases, we believe prices will be lower before the end of July than they are now. He continued on to say the head and shoulders top patterns from November 2009 were confirmed this week with decisive breaks below those necklines, increasing the probability their downside targets will be reached, suggesting stocks are headed sharply lower with a downside target of 8,500 in the industrials and 875-ish in the S&P 500. But that is just the first of what may be, of what will be many down legs as markets head to zero over the next three to five years. The 50-day moving average dropped under the now-declining 200-day moving average Friday in the S&P 500, as expected, a very bearish development and a warning in neon lights that a crash is very possible at, a, at any time over the coming weeks and months. This death cross has already occurred in the New York Stock Exchange and in several international stock markets. We got a new sell signal in the plunge protection team indicating this week that the uh, that the powers that be will not be able to stop this decline from coming. Now, I'm telling you all of this at a time when we saw the stock market rally very strongly early in today, today's markets. And now, as I glance at the screen, I see the Dow is actually down two points. We may not even get that three to five day move up, folks. What is happening? How did we get ourselves in this horrible mess? Coming up next, I'm going to be talking uh, to our, get, our, our main guest this week, James Perloff, He's the author of Shadows of the Shadows of Power, an excellent book on the Council of Foreign Relations. I'll be right back with James Perloff. Don't go away.
market's up or down. Or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Richfield Ventures Corp. is a publicly traded junior mining company on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol RVC. Led by an experienced and dedicated team, Richfield is systematically drilling 25,000 meters of core in 2010 on its Blackwater Gold Project in central British Columbia, where the primary goal is to discover a world-class bulk tonnage gold deposit. With $5 million in treasury and 40 million shares fully diluted, Richfield and its shareholders are poised for a major discovery. Go to richfieldventures.com. CA for further information. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by dasha capital is offering the world's first and only corporate stockpile of rare earth minerals giving investors the ability to participate in the physical ownership of these critical elements without the associated mining and execution risk rare earth elements are used in many industries from aerospace and automotive to high tech and green tech dasha capital is listed on the tsx.v in toronto under the symbol dac and on the otcqx in the u.s under symbol dchaf please visit at www.dashacapital.com to learn more. That's D-A-C-H-A-Capital.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love ride. I'll be sliding down you're listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. The United States used to be a capitalist country. 
but increasingly we have begun to look more and more like a socialist nation. Actually, in my view, I think we look more like a fascist country, but you know that's that's debatable, I suppose. I say that because uh, though because fascism economics, fascist economics, really uh, involves large corporations and governments looking out after each other in bed together, if you want to put it that way, to protect each other uh, at the expense of the common folks, really. But how did we get ourselves to where we are now? How has the decline of our economic freedom and our overall freedom come about? And for some thoughts on those questions and more, I'm happy to have with me today James Perloff. He's the author of an excellent book that I read several, quite a few years ago, actually now, The Shadows of Power. Uh, I first became familiar with this book when a Boston attorney, uh, was a subscriber of mine in my newsletter, wrote to tell me about it, and he said that he had read the book and that it had really changed his views of the world and had uh, really changed a lot of the way he lived his life and the way he uh, went about um, planning his future. So I picked up a copy of that book, and I must say that it definitely was one of the most influential books that I've read in my life as well. James Perloff is a freelance author who has written for the New American Magazine since 1986. Shadows of Power was his first book. It introduced the reader to how private interests are behind the American foreign policy scene. Mr. Perloff has also written another book titled Tornado, or Tornado in the Junkyard and The Case Against Darwin. Both are written for laymen on the topic of Darwin evolution. While that is a topic I find very interesting personally and perhaps uh, more important than any topic we will ever talk about on this show, uh, because this show is focused primarily on money, economics, and politics, our focus today will be primarily in that area and on the topics covered in The Shadow of Power. Welcome, James, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, uh, thanks for having me on, Jay, and I hope that will be a good time for the audience. Well, I, I'm sure it will be. I, I absolutely think it will be because uh, you have so many fascinating things in your book. Uh, I'd like to just read, uh, if I can pick out a quote or two that you start out your book with, um, just see if I can find what I'm looking for. Basically, uh, let's see, uh, here's one. Senator William Jenner warned in a speech in 1954, he said, Today the path to total dictatorship in the United States can be laid by strictly legal means, unseen and unheard of by Congress, the President, or the people. Outwardly, we have a constitutional government. We have operating within our government and political system another body representing another form of government, a bureaucratic elite who believes our Constitution is outmoded and is sure that it is the winning side. All the strange developments in foreign policy agreements may be traced to this group who are going to make us over to suit their pleasure. This political action group has its own local political support organizations, its own pressure groups, its own vested interests, its foothold within our government, and its own propaganda apparatus, end of quote. So Senator Jenner was talking about a power behind the throne, and that is much about, you know, what Shadows of Power is about, is it not? And could you just tell us uh, if that is, if I'm reading correctly, what your book is about, then who are those folks that are behind, that are real, the real powers behind our, our throne? Uh, right. Uh, well, uh, you know, the popular idea um, and uh, the Americanist vision is that uh, power would belong to the people. We'd have government of the people, by the people, and for the people. But as time has uh, gone by, we've seen power increasingly shift away from the people 
over to the elite, uh, if, we, if they consider themselves elite, the, the, the rich, the powerful, and the few, those who run our multinational corporations, the major banks, the foundations, the major media, um, the elite that uh, Senator Jenner was talking about uh, in, in that quotation. And um, they have been uh, dictating our foreign policy uh, at least since the days of uh, Woodrow Wilson and my book, pretty much starts uh, with the Wilson administration and the forces that were behind him. And uh, their goal is uh, to achieve a world government, which um, may be rightly understood, though it will be sold to us as a pathway to peace or, or uh, security and prosperity, will in fact be a path to dictatorship. Because when you would centralize power in one place, as the founding fathers of America knew, you... Um, are opening the door to tyranny. You always want checks and balances on power. But when you have a world government, uh, which is what uh, the powers that be are advocating, you take away the check and balance that the world's division into different countries um, constitutes. Um, now, this perhaps sounds a little abstract, but these guys are very real. And uh, if people think this is unreal, the idea of a world government, just take a look at the European Union and there you see on a, a micro scale world government taking place. National sovereignty is a, becoming a thing of the past in Europe, where once uh, Spain and England were mighty empires, they're now just becoming provinces within the European Union, where, of course, as you know, uh, they're consolidating their currencies into the euro, they're consolidating their laws. Um, and the same thing is, is envisioned for America, where NAFTA, is uh, they're planning to turn NAFTA into what they call the North American Union model on the European Union, uh, very much in the way that the common market sold to Europeans as a simple economic alliance was used to transform um, Europe into a uh, union uh, where national sovereignty becomes extinct. This is all part of a, uh, a grand scheme to bring about world government. And in my book, The Shadows of Power, we specifically focus on the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, which is, I'm going to use this word, conspiracy, which is the conspiracy's tool to influence the U.S. presidency and to dictate our, some of our domestic policy, but mostly our foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Well, if, um, if it's a tool, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm familiar with the, uh, the Council of foreign relations. They certainly are not an organization that hides itself. Uh, it, it puts out a publication that, uh, that comes to this office from time to time. It's an, uh, sort of interesting to read. Uh, but, our, you know, I always, well, I mean, a lot of people think of them as nothing much more than a, than a think tank. Um, are they more than a think tank? Uh, they certainly are. They have, uh, dominated, um, the, uh, cabinets, uh, of presidents going back to the days uh, of uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt. Uh, I, I'm not saying Woodrow Wilson because technically they weren't created until after the Wilson administration, the council itself. Yeah. But since the council was founded in 1921, we've had uh, 21 secretaries of defense or war have come from the ranks of the council. And of course, the Defense Department used to be called the War Department. 19 secretaries of the Treasury, 15 CIA directors, and 17 secretaries of state. Uh, Bill Clinton picked 12 of his cabinet members from the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, the uh, Bush administration was dominated by CFR members like Dick Cheney and Condoleezza Rice. And um, 
as I document in my recently published article, Influencing, Influencing American Government, which appeared in the New American Magazine and can be found online, we document uh, CFR domination of the Obama administration. So it can, doesn't matter whether the president is a Republican or a Democrat to the elite who select the major party candidates before we even get a chance to vote on them ourselves. Uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, they will usually put a Republican in if they want to make a foreign policy change, as when they had Nixon open the door to Red China and the Soviet Union. Or if the, the people are tired of the uh, Republicans, they're going to get a change now. They'll put in a, a, a Democrat who will introduce um, more socialization and domestic policy. But the candidates are not our choice. They're their choice. And the council is the tool by providing um, uh, people who will dominate the president's cabinet as well as the sub-cabinet level to control our, our domestic and especially our foreign policy. How is, how is one chosen to become a member of the Council of Foreign Relations? How many members are there, first of all, more or less, do you know? There's over 4,000. Um, it's been growing. Uh, in the Kennedy days, there were about 1,000 and when they initially started out in 1921, they had about 200 members. But to become a member, you have to be invited by uh, someone who's already a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and have your membership approved. Okay, so, and why would you want to be? Because it would set you for life? You would have a, a great uh, future in terms of job opportunities, or, or what? Well, uh, it would certainly be the, uh, the doorstep to... Um, getting into the government in a very high cabinet-level position. Mm -hmm. um, it's almost prerequisite if you're going to enter the uh, a high level of the Defense Department or National Security uh, or the, the State Department foreign policy um, that you're going to be a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. And this, of course, tends to give a uniformity to our policies. Would, this, uh, would it ha have some advantage in industry, too, if you're a member of the CFR? Well, um, you know, it it definitely helps to, as we all know, to have connections. Right. And um, uh, I don't know that in the business world this doesn't necessarily make a difference. But understand this: that the Council on Foreign Relations is specifically there to uh, create and implement foreign policy, specifically in the direction of strengthening the UN, strengthening our global alliances, creating systems like NAFTA and a North American Union, it wouldn't necessarily be a doorstep to um, being the CEO of a, an international, a multinational corporation. You probably already have that status, but you've probably achieved that status through other connections, maybe through your membership in uh, a fraternity like the Skull and Bones, or mm -hmm. even um, some of the upper ranks, and I mean up very high ranks of, of Freemasonry. I was. Uh, I can say that there's one person that I've personally known who is a member of the Council of Foreign Relations, and his name is Tony Walton. He was the head of Westpac Banking Corporation in New York, and I was a, uh, a, a low, I suppose, a fairly low-level uh, officer at that time as a credit analyst and, and lending officer. But uh, I remember seeing his name on a list of the CFR right next to Barbara Walters, so uh, out listed alphabetically Walton and Walters. But uh, who, besides, uh, so what kind of people, I guess the people from the media that are very influential are, are here as well, people from what walks of life are in the CFR? Uh, you will see a lot of foundation executives. The major tax-free foundations uh, basically are a tool to finance tax-free uh, the agenda 
that the establishment wants, mm. uh, such as uh, funding the green movement, uh, funding universities and using the power of the purse to teach students politically uh, correct ideas. Also, the CFR has a very large contingent of uh, media executives and media personnel, uh, major top newscasters. You mentioned Barbara Walters, Dan Rather, uh, Katie Quirk, and many others have been members. Because part of this plan for world government demands that the public not know what's going on. In order to do that, it is necessary to control the media. That becomes an issue uh, ultimately of money. And if you trace back, as I do in my in the 12th chapter of The Shadows of Power, the history of, of uh, our major magazines, Time magazines, uh, the New York Times, you will find that they were financed by the financial establishment. I'm talking about the Rockefeller, Morgan, Rothschild block that mm-hmm. has uh, created the Federal Reserve and created actually the Council on Foreign Relations. But we mentioned media people, we mentioned foundation executives, certainly many of the um, uh, Fortune 500 uh, executives, um, people from uh, places like IBM and Exxon, uh, you'll find them in there as well, and people who are um, in uh, major businesses in academia and uh, in our government, when, of course, government is the focus. You mentioned the Skull and Crossbones. Could you talk about that organization just a little bit? I've, I, you know, I've heard that George Bush uh, Jr. And, and Senior, perhaps, were members when they were at Yale. Could you, could you mention or just talk to us a little bit about who are these people, the Skull and Crossbones, and what are they about? Well, um, the Skull and Bones is a, uh, is a uh, elitist um, uh, fraternity at Yale, uh, very selective membership whose members, like William F. Buckley and Averill Harriman, and you mentioned uh, the Bushes, uh, will find themselves anointed in special ways. Um, exactly what goes on there is difficult to say because of the secrecy that they themselves demand of membership. Um, whereas the Council on Foreign Relations is a semi-public organization where you can directly read things that they're, they're, uh, they are writing about. Uh, there was a movie, by the way, made about the Skull and Bones, or at least it is said to be made about the Skull and Bones. Back in 1970, it was called The Brotherhood of the Bell, starring Glenn Ford. Now, that movie has, has gone underground in the sense that you can't buy it on Amazon, but if you go around to places like eBay, you can pick up a copy. And it's a very good um, analysis of how a secret fraternity, very powerful, uh, operates. Glenn Ford uh, has this uh, wealthy position uh He's, um, his life has just been um, uh, affluent and successful ever since he's been a membership uh, in membership of this fraternity. And then they give him a dirty job to do. He's, he, he goes back for a meeting at the fraternity, and they hand him a piece of paper. And basically, he has to uh, prevent a certain professor from accepting a certain position, uh, which leads to the professor's suicide, and, Gl- and Glenn Ford goes all out to expose the group, and I say, well, that's just fiction, but it's a, it's an excellent dramatization, and it's said to be based upon skull and bones. Not why the focus of why did bones. they have to go underground if it's a, um, if it's a fictitious story? Right. Uh, uh, I'm sure that anyone watching at the time did not know how close to reality that movie was. Yeah. And you can, and what was the name of it again? The, the Brotherhood of the Bell. Makes, the bro- it makes a good brother- watch. Interesting. Well, it might be one I'll, I'll look, to, look to see. Uh, we've had other very interesting movies, too, uh, like Enemy of the State, for example, and uh, uh, some of those that are... Well, you know, this all smacks of conspira- conspiracy theory, and, and, you know, people think that those of us who think that conspiracies go on at these high levels, uh, we'll, 
we're sort of looked at as as nutcases sometimes. Well, you know, I'm I'm sure you've had the charges made of you already writing a book like The Shadows of Power. Even though, as I read your book, it's very well documented. You know, I mean, it's not like you're making stuff up. You're documenting stuff. Uh, somehow, though, it seems to be the the tool uh, of the establishment, perhaps, to protect their own position. How are they so successful in making those of us who might want to talk about these things look like like we're crazy? Okay, well, that is done by what has been uh, characterized as the big lie. If you tell something to people enough times, you will start to assume that it must be true. Right. Um, there was something called um, in psychology called the Ash Test once, where um, a person would, uh, you know, he'd be paid money to go in and take a, uh, a vision test with other people in the room, and he'd, the question would be which line is longer. And the, uh, the line on top would be the longest, but everybody else in the room would raise their hand and say the line on the bottom was the longest. And the, what the, the person taking the test didn't know was that these peoples were all, uh, the pe- other people taking the test were actually Confederates of the person running the test, and he alone was being uh, subjected to the test. Well, when everybody else said that the lowest line was longest, most of the people raised their hand because they figured, well, I couldn't, the, all these people couldn't be, couldn't yeah. be wrong. Right. And that's right. how it is with our media. You know, in our media, uh, people think we have a diverse media, but if you start to take a look at it, some people will say, well, you know, I get my information from a lot of different sources. I turn on America Online in the morning, and then if I doubt a story, I can turn on CNN. If I don't believe it, I can, I can read my Time magazine. Well, that's fine and well, except that Time magazine, CNN, and AOL are all owned by Time Warner. Mm. And if you look, you'll see that the Boston Globe is owned by the New York Times, and Disney owns ABC, and CBS owns the publishing house Simon & Schuster. And um, the Washington Post owns Newsweek. And the diverse media is not so diverse. There's actually about a dozen huge corporations that own most of the movie studios, TV and radio outlets, major magazines, and newspapers. And thus, we do not have a, a diverse media. But it looks like there's a consensus out there because all these media people are saying the same thing. And thus, the big lie phenomenon sets in. And they portray us as crazies, and, uh, well, you know, they must be right, because that's what they're all saying. That's what they're all saying. There, uh, there definitely does seem to be, um, you know, a lot of parallels in, in what you read, and certainly, but here's a question for you. The, the media is changing very rapidly these days with the Internet, and right. it seems to me that there is some... Uh, a lot more diversity now. A lot of the younger people are not paying a lot of attention, I think, to the mainstream media as maybe they once did. It seems to me, certainly there are, there are you know a lot of ideas that are spread out. I mean, I can write anything I want on the internet. I right. I, I, I suspect that if I were, you know, extremely influential, uh, that may not be the case. Uh, you know, um, they let Ron Paul run for president on the Republican ticket, for example. Um, Ron wants to get rid of the Fed and get rid of the IRS. I mean, it, it looks like we have a real free system, but um, do we? I mean, I mean, to what extent, I, I guess, because if you have the mainstream guys, the big guys, the big networks saying it, they are the respectable ones, then you can let us little guys say all kinds of crazy things and it's not a, not a threat? Um, well, let me just talk about that. You're very right about the Internet being right now a very uh, free place of speech. And the Internet, of course, is an excellent place to go shopping, and it's an excellent place to do research. And right now, uh, we're free to do that. And um, But what I just want to say is this. The Internet is also the greatest surveillance tool that um, the government has ever had. Mm. Uh, you know, George Orwell wrote a book, uh, a very prophetic book called 1984, 
where the government could look right into your home and see what you were doing. Mm. It was a totalitarian state. Orwell knew what he was talking about because he was attached to MI6, which is the British CIA. He wrote his book as fiction in order not to be prosecuted under Britain's official secret acts, but he knew it was coming. And um, here's the thing. Um, the government knew uh, a long time ago, uh, let's just start uh, talking about media, mm-hmm. let's back up from the Internet for a minute to television. The government knew in the 1950s to get a TV into every home in order to propagandize the public. They're going to have to give the, the public what we now refer to lovingly as the golden age of television. And so in the 1950s, they gave us Leave it to Beaver and Father Knows Best. And people would say, hey, Joe, I got a TV set, and it's great. My kids learned the, honor, the value of obeying your parents and uh-huh. watch Superman about truth, justice, the American way. Yes. And then once TV saturated American homes, the content suddenly began to shift, and they checked out Leave it to Beaver and Father Knows Best and that kind of show. And gradually the content shifted over to uh, All in the Family and Archie Bunker as the uh, stereotype conservative. And gradually the content became politicized and non-family, and now it's degrading. And that was by design. It wasn't by chance. They knew that to get the TVs into people's homes first, they had to sell them on something wholesome. Well, the Internet is kind of a similar thing. Now, it used to be if you wanted to spy on someone, you know, a CIA agent would have to, you know, actually get over, infiltrate the organization, and, you know, maybe uh, uh, open up a file at night when nobody was looking. That's pretty tough work. But now he could sit right in his office, go onto his computer, go tap right into the person's computer at home, see who his friends are, read his email, get a good idea of his political convictions. Man, that's easy spy work. Mm. The Internet is the greatest surveillance tool uh, uh, that ever uh, existed, and I believe that is its true purpose. But to get people to use it, you had to make it attractive. Now, right now, we have tremendous free speech on the Internet. I don't expect that to last. Um, I can't remember his name, but uh, Obama has got sort of an information czar who's recently been talking about uh, the need to um, regulate Internet content and um, let it re- require uh, websites to show opposing views and tie themselves to CNN so people can... It's sort of the beginnings of regulation of the Internet. I expect that our freedom will not last. It was put out there to make sure that a uh, surveillance tool was put into every home, much as Orwell predicted, but I don't expect that freedom to last. So I, I, I encourage people to use their Internet freedom while they have it. Um, I hope that I don't sound too wild and like a you know a bleary-eyed um, um, conspiracy theorist, but um, that is what the pattern has been, and that's what I do expect to eventually happen: is that there will be a clampdown on information, just as in China, they clamp down on information there that people can see on the internet. Well, James, I don't think uh, you know anybody that's been, and I haven't really followed the hearings or the. Uh, uh, the new Supreme Court uh, justice that's uh, going to be put through apparently without any without too many questions. But apparently there was a question about that very issue whether uh, she thought that Obama should have the right to shut the internet down or to um, mm-hmm. I don't know exactly the wording, but that was the idea. Uh, and and she said, yeah, of course, you know, I mean he should have the, he should you know in a case of emergency, we have uh, the president of the United States actually I think this is something that not too many people are aware of, but basically the president of the United States can. Uh, can issue an executive order almost for any any time any time any time or for any purpose if he deems it to be a national security issue is that right well i don't think you'll find that anywhere in the constitution but no. unfortunately our presidents have been issuing unconstitutional executive orders so long that people have sort of forgotten that the constitution doesn't allow them to do that the you know, they're basically walking all over the constitution powers. and it's just um, becoming more and more of a 
uh, a document that the uh, Supreme Court and our executives uh, just in our Congress just um, ignore uh, the limitations on governmental power that are, are were, were strictly stipulated at the time because are, because people were very suspicious, you know, in the days of of, uh, of uh, the of the, uh, of the the new country after uh, we had uh, come free of British rule, a lot of people were against federalism and a lot of people were against joining together in one union because they didn't trust a centralized government. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to give some credit to those people who had the wisdom to foresee just how powerful a federal government could become and uh, what the, the worst that they imagined or worse than they've imagined has now happened. Well, we, uh, I would like to, uh, we're going to have to go to a break here in a few, in just a couple of minutes, actually. And so there's one thing I want to talk to you about at the other, on the other side of the, um, of the hour here. And that has to do with uh, the structure above the CFR. We're talking about the CFR, but who are the people at the core of the CFR? That, I'm glad you asked. And, and I want to I get into that a little bit at the, at the turn of the, uh, after we come back after the commercial break. But before we get there, I'd just like to, ask you something about, um, we've had these various presidents. Reagan, uh, for example, got in, and it seemed to me that Ronald Reagan would not have been the CFR's top choice. But once he got in there, the people that were closest to Reagan that might have wanted to look seriously at uh, reinstalling a gold standard, for example, others that were very much true Reaganites were sort of pushed aside, and in came George W. Bush, uh, you know, Papa Bush came in to be the vice president. It seemed like a whole host of people were then put in place surrounding President Reagan to make sure that he was kept under control. Do you do you see that? Is that yes? That's always it? been the case. You know, uh, the the people are usually given a president. You know, uh, a Harry Truman, a Ronald Reagan, a Richard Nixon, a guy who sort of a small town sort of captures. You know, some of the hopefully uh, they hope some of the warmth of the American people. Uh, they'll appeal more to the average Joe, but the He'll be surrounded by the Kissingers and the Brzezinski's and the CFR types who will continue to push policy away from um, a, uh, the uh, national sovereignty that you and I desire to keep in, into a world government and uh, continue to serve the interest of the multinationals and the big bankers. So we might talk about some other presidents if we have the time, too, and get your take on them, and also foreign policy and, and the wars that we've been into. Uh, these are all topics I would like to talk about at the other other side of the break. Um, let me just see how much time we got. Nixon, for example, very interesting, a very interesting president for sure. Took us off the gold standard. People ask me, uh, you know, who, who I think is the worst president in my lifetime. I, I answer Richard Nixon. They say, why? And I said, because not because of Watergate. No, not because of Watergate, but because he took us off the gold standard. So I would like to uh, get your take on that issue as well as the one I, I mentioned, the structural uh, the structural issue about who controls the Council of Foreign Relations. Because the Council of Foreign Relations, as you said, is, is pretty public. You know, it's out there. Uh, people come on television all the time. They're members of the CFR. They talk about their views on things. So we'll be right back to talk to James Perloff on the other side of this uh, commercial break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. 
Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Barkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Dasha Capital is offering the world's first and only corporate stockpile of rare earth minerals, giving investors the ability to participate in the physical ownership of these critical elements without the associated mining and execution risk. Rare earth elements are used in many industries, from aerospace and automotive to high-tech and green-tech. Dasha Capital is listed on the TSX.V in Toronto under the symbol DAC and on the OTCQX in the U.S. under symbol DCHAF. Please visit www.dashacapital.com to learn more. That's D-A-C-H-A-Capital.com. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by the business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network welcome to the human race some kind of love and ride i'll be sliding down i'll be gliding down try not to try to you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech. 
stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Again, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show and want to thank our sponsors during the second hour of this show. Uh, because without them, uh, the show would not be financially possible. Our sponsors for the second hour are Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Sullivan Gold Corp., Dasha Capital, Richfield Ventures, Brigus Gold Corp., Everton Resources, Mill Rock Resources, and Golden Hope Mines. Well, I'm back with James Perloff. He's the author of Shadows of Power, and it was, as I said earlier, an eye-opening book for me. It certainly was one of the most influential books that I've read in my in my lifetime. It's not a big re- uh, book. It's not a difficult read. It's a very interesting read, and if you're at all interested in contemporary history, the history of the last 100 or 200 years in the United States, actually really more like the last 100 years of the United States, it's really very, very interesting reading as well. So uh, I would say that like Ed Griffin's book, and we have, we've had Ed Griffin on this show too, The Creature from Jekyll Island, The Shadows of Power, helps us understand who is actually in control of our government, who pulls the, the strings, who gives us the choices we have to vote on for president, who, who's behind the, the bailouts of all the large corporations, uh, who's really making this all happen. Certainly wasn't the voters on all of those issues, that's for sure. And I would also say about the shadows of power that it complements the creature from Jekyll Island very well, and I think vice versa. I think the creature from Jekyll Island complements the shadows of power. I haven't seen any contradiction between the two works. And so I guess maybe I'd like to ask you, uh, James, uh, are you familiar, I'm quite sure you must be familiar with The Creature from Jekyll Island? I recommend that book to everyone, uh, and Ed Griffin and I have um, exchanged emails at times when I had a question on the Federal Reserve. Uh, We um, know who each other is, uh, and... um, uh, his his book is outstanding. It's the best possible work you could read on on the uh, Fed. I know that he he picked up on some of the work of uh, earlier on that was financed by Ezra Pond um, and uh, the Eustace Mullins, I believe, was the person that did the initial work in terms of understanding and documenting who the Federal Reserve was, who was behind the Federal Reserve. Uh, and, and I guess maybe what we should do is, is talk a little bit about the Council of Foreign Relations, which we're talking about, and the Federal Reserve. Is there a connection there? Well, the same people were behind the founding of both. Um, we're, we're going back to the days of Woodrow Wilson, when Edward Mandel House, who lived right in the White House, was Wilson's controller for Wall Street, for the Rothschild, Rockefeller, Morgan interests. And, um, of course, in his very first year in office, 1913, he uh, paid off to his electoral support, meaning the Morgan interest, et cetera. Uh, his very first year in office, 1913, was when both income tax and the Federal Reserve became law. But one of the things the bankers also wanted, as we were talking about earlier on the show, was a world government. And the first um, organized, uh, structured world government or attempt at it was the League of Nations, which Woodrow Wilson proposed, but which he did not actually invent. It was actually, uh, as his official biographer, Ray Standard Baker, acknowledged uh, it was actually the work of House um, and uh, his entourage, the bankers, who um, and Wilson uh, simply uh, made a few um, vocabulary changes, but uh, it was not his idea. But that was an attempt at world government, which he introduced at the Paris Peace Conference of 1919, uh, which was settling the aftermath of the First World War. And the League of Nations was enacted uh, through the Versailles Treaty, 
But um, uh, the founding fathers of America had wisely stipulated that no treaty could be accepted by the American government unless it was ratified by the Senate. Well, the Senate got wise, and they realized that the League of Nations could threaten our sovereignty, so they rejected the Versailles Treaty. And America, ironically, did not join the League, even though Woodrow Wilson had proposed it. Now, when the bankers in, who were still in Paris learned that the Senate was uh, refusing to ratify the treaty, they held a series of meetings in Paris, uh, culminating with a dinner at the Majestic Hotel. And at that dinner, they resolved to form a new organization in America whose purpose would be to bring America into the realm of world government, which at that time was constituted by the League of Nations. And that organization to bring America into world government was the Council on Foreign Relations, which was incorporated two years later in New York City, 1921. Uh, and there, there you have the bankers behind Wilson and the Fed, mm-hmm. uh, creating the Fed to create money out of nothing, to give themselves bailouts, to create to finance wars without having to raise taxes. Mm-hmm. It's been responsible for the inflation, of course, uh, that I've seen the, the price in prices, the rise in prices, which is absurd, which we did not have before the Fed. Mm-hmm. Any chart of prices will show. And but they're also the force behind uh, the League of Nations. And when that failed, uh, then they created the Council to bring about uh, uh, world government. And in fact, the U- United Nations was in fact a CFR creation as a. The the uh, uh, the United Nations was actually the uh, the uh, organization was actually generated and planned by a group calling themselves the Informal Agenda Group, a group of CFR members in the U.S. State Department. Hmm. So the CFR then is attached to this group of of wealthy bankers, and I think we know some of the main families. They would be the Rothschilds, of course, but uh, the Morgans, I guess, Warburgs. Um, um, some others. Uh, Bernard Baruch came along a little later, yeah, right? Yeah, uh, the Rockefellers and Bernard Baruch uh, were definitely uh, all part of this. Jean Monnet in in Europe. Interesting. Uh, Baruch as well. That's interesting. I, I happened to go to uh, Baruch College and got my MBA there, so I that's, I didn't realize that uh, Bernard Baruch were was part of that. Uh, yes. Well, the, the fingerprints are everywhere. <laughs> when you've got money, you have a lot of leave a lot of fingerprints behind. Okay, so we have this this group, and uh, what I wanted to ask you about before we went to break then was the structure. We've had on this show uh, Daniel Estulin, who's talked to us about the Bilderbergs, uh, and it's my understanding that the Bilderbergs have, um, you know, royalty interests, really, really wealthy people uh, from, you know, from from centuries back, actually, if you look at the royalty of Europe. The royalty of Europe uh, involved in this, as you see it? Uh, to some degree, uh, they are. Now, uh, part of this long-range plan was to overthrow monarchies, because monarchs uh, represent a symbol of national unity, who people will rally around. And um, it's interesting that a book was written back in 1798 called Proofs of a Conspiracy by Professor John Robison of Edinburgh, Scotland, about a uh, plan being orchestrated by a group on the uh, uh, mainland of, of Europe called the Illuminati. And um, it was a, uh, about an, a plan to overthrow all of the governments and religion religions of Europe. And people might laugh at that and say, well, that guy must have been the conspiracy not due to his age. Well, you know what? He was right, because all the uh, governments of that time were, were overthrown, starting with the King of France. Now, uh, some monarchies were uh, conjoined to this group in time, and the British royal family is one of them. But many of the monarchies, the monarchies of the Balkans, of Italy, 
uh, and many of the others were simply eliminated and wiped out, as, and uh, they were replaced either by socialist, communist states, uh, as in the case of the Tsar, um, and that royal family was eliminated. Um, all over the world, the monarchs were eliminated about the same time the, the, uh, the, the uh, emperor of China went down in 1911, and, the, the, of course, the, the Kaisers disappeared in Germany, and they were replaced either by uh, uh, republics or democracies or, or socialist or communistic states, but all of this was part of the, the grand march towards the New World Order. Those that they could make into communist states with an overnight revolution like they did in Russia in 1917, they did. But in a place like America, where you couldn't get uh, a um, middle class that was unhappy and wanted a revolution, uh, here you have to introduce communism through step-by-step socialism. Mm-hmm. Um, Probably well, drifted away from your original question here. <laughs> you were asking me about the monarchies. Yes, some of the monarchies are included in this group, but most of them are eliminated along the bloodshed way. Okay, but you would see the the English, uh, the British monarchy being a part of it, possibly. Many observers have affirmed that. I, mm-hmm. I do want to talk about how the council uh, interacts with uh, other groups in other countries. Sure. And uh, I also want to talk about the structure behind this, and I'd also like to talk about... Uh, people in the intelligence community have affirmed these observations. The Council is simply uh, the American foreign policy branch of an overriding power structure, which appears to be pyramidal in shape. That is to say that uh, as you go towards the top of the pyramid, there are fewer and fewer people at the upper levels who are more and more powerful. Um, The Council on Foreign Relations has counterpart groups in most of the uh, major industrial nations, of course, in Britain, uh, it's very well known that the um, uh, Institute of uh, International, uh, Royal Institute of International Affairs, runs their foreign policy. Um, in America, uh, we have the Council. Let me just mention um, a few others. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, Pardon me while I shuffle my paperwork. Well, um, I don't want to uh, tie people up here while I'm shuffling papers. So let me. Oh, here we go. In Canada, the Canadian Institute of International Affairs. In Germany, the German Society for Foreign Policy. In Italy, the Institute for International Affairs. We could go on down a list of dozens of names. But how do they um, interact with each other to collude um, mm-hmm. in the drive for world government. Yeah. You mentioned Daniel Estelin and the Bilderbergers. One way is through the annual meetings of the Bilderberger groups, where the key personnel from these organizations meet together in secrecy with no media present except for the media executives who themselves are members of the Bilderbergers. They, they uh, have these meetings, as you know, uh, every year at a uh, five-star resort where even the hotel staff are required to leave and their own private staff uh, run the hotel while they hold these meetings in secret. They also um, get together through the meetings of the Trilateral Commission, which was founded by David Rockefeller and Zbigniew Brzezinski in 1973. The word trilateral um, refers to an attempt to bring about coordination of policy in three spheres, uh, America, Europe, and Asia. And also... Through, um, you might be familiar with the meetings of the Bohemian Grove, which is an annual satanic, really, uh, get-together where they uh, engage in these occult rituals and uh, uh, have a mock human sacrifice in front of a gigantic owl. Now, this may sound crazy for those who have never heard of it before, but if you go to Alex Jones' website, Infowars.com, he's got video 
secretly filmed of this ritual taking mm. place. This is a real thing, and it's not hard to find information about the Bohemian Grove right now on the Internet. So this is some of the ways that the CFR members are able to uh, communicate with and plan um, the broad plan, the broad agenda for the world, which they themselves are specifically carrying out through their membership, sitting on presidential cabinets and in uh, the various departments of our own government. Yeah, because one of the issues that you, that you, when you talk about conspiracies, people always say, well, how can you get everybody to agree on things? How can you get them to collude? You know, I mean, I remember hearing, um, you know, Doug Casey saying already uh, at one of the shows that I was at, he says, you know, I don't believe any of this uh, gold ant- uh, uh, the GATA, gold antitrust action committee uh, s- uh, stuff about uh, rigging the gold price. He says, I can't, he had five people sitting around uh, in this room. You couldn't get them to agree on what color the walls are. How are you going to get them to to work together, and yet the the Bilderbergs get together uh, once a year, and as you mentioned, they have uh, they have uh, people in the media that are there, but they're sworn to secrecy. We're not allowed to know anything about what goes on, and yet these are powerful, wealthy people who control our banking system, control our political system, control our media system. Uh, that are would I mean you know why do they have to be uh, why does there have to be a secret if there isn't something going on? I guess is my question. Well, uh, absolutely. Um, if it's something that the public could accept, it should be out in the open. Uh, what goes on in our government should be a matter of uh, public record. And if our government leaders are meeting and planning with uh, people from uh, other governments, the American people should have a right to know about that if it's really government by the people. Um, the, the, by the way, the organization I'm talking about, the international power structure I mentioned, is definitely satanic in nature. Mm. And... Um, I just want to mention um, some of the uh, people who have affirmed its existence. Sure. Because I want to add some credibility to what I'm saying, since yeah, exactly. we don't have the kind of clout that the uh, that the, is generated by the image of uh, a newscaster sitting at the CNN news, news <laughs> desk. So um, let me just mention a few people who you can um, uh, Google and, and, and look up and, sure. and find out about. Myron Fagan was a... Um, a very eminent Jewish playwright. He was the actually the uh, public relations director for Charles Evan Hughes, who ran against Woodrow Wilson in 1916. And he became involved in the fight against communism. And in the 1960s, he revealed what he had discovered about the Council on Foreign Relations. And if you go online, you can actually hear his talks about the CFR. And you look, look under Myron Fagan, F-A-G-A-N. Uh, he gave talks on the CFR and the Illuminati. The Illuminati are one of the the uh, most commonly used names to describe this power group, this satanic power structure that is aiming at a world government. Um, in 1926, Major General Arthur Cherup Sparadovich, Major General in the um, formerly in the Tsar's Army, wrote a book called The Secret World Government, where he documented this same system at work from a European perspective. Uh, William Guy Carr, who was involved in Canadian intelligence for many years and was a newspaper man up there and developed extensive intelligence contacts, wrote one of the best books, can't recommend it highly enough, called Pawns in the Game, back in the 1950s. But you fast forward 50 years later, you see Ted Gunderson, 29-year veteran of the FBI, whose last position was special agent in charge of the FBI agent in Los Angeles, validating everything Carr said about the Council on Foreign Relations. You can go to his website, tedgunderson.net. Now, take it over to Britain, and Sir Barry Domville, the head of British naval intelligence, discovered the same thing, that bankers 
in secret were running the British government from behind the scenes for his troubles. Barry Domville was stripped of his admiral rank, thrown in Brixton prison, and uh, without due process, no trial, no charges, was on the whim of the British government. And you can read his book. It's called From Admiral to Cabinet Boy. That was in the 50s. But fast forward to present time, you see Dr. John Coleman, officer in uh, British intelligence, the MI6. Again, that's the British CIA, mm-hmm. writing his book, The Committee of 300, which is about an upper level of this international satanic power structure pyramid. The Committee of 300 by Dr. John Coleman. You can get it on Amazon or at his website, uh, Coleman300.com. Take it over to France. You see Pierre de Villemarest of French intelligence exposing the Council on Foreign Relations and the, uh, the design behind the European Union. Uh, take it back to America. You find Hilaire du Berrier, uh, who was one of the original members of the OSS, the forerunner of the CIA. He ran a newsletter out of Monaco for over 50 years where he exposed these same things we're talking about today. Mm. What I'm saying to you is that people who, from these various backgrounds, from different countries, different times and places, all reaching the same conclusion as what we're talking about today. Um, I'm, try- I'm bringing up these individuals because you can Google them, you can look up their works, you can read them. Um, although sometimes you have to go to used bookstores uh, sure. uh, online to find them, sure. but all reaching the same conclusion. Right. Well, I, you know, um, Mayor Rothschild said, uh, let me issue and control a nation's money, and I care not who writes its laws. Mm-hmm. And the Rothschilds, I believe, um, had a reach into Germany and France, England, and, and the United States, I believe. So how, but we don't see the name Rothschild anywhere in the U.S., do we? Uh, no, we don't, and I think that's because they, uh, they basically hide themselves behind uh, the names of corporations and uh, trusts and uh, front companies, so you don't just see the name, uh, but their presence is definitely there. I understand that they're, I've heard uh, it, it said that they're worth in the trillions, but mm-hmm. uh, probably nobody's able to assess exactly how much they're worth. Uh, and uh, another interesting fact, of course, I think most of the, certainly most of the people on this show know it, but uh, most Americans are not aware that the Federal Reserve is not federal. It's owned uh, by private interest, and these same private interests, as you pointed out earlier, would be uh, in common to a great extent with a lot of the folks that at least control the Council of Foreign Relations, the trilateralists, as well as the, I guess, the Bilderbergers would have their tentacles into the C- into the Fed as well, in one way or another. But if we look at the uh, other central banks, uh, let's say Germany, France, England, those central banks also are owned by private interest. Is that right? Uh, that is my understanding, and uh, that was uh, discussed uh, by Carol Quigley um, in his um, book, Tragedy and Hope. Uh-huh. Uh, he wrote in that, uh, Professor Quigley of Georgetown University wrote, um, it must not be felt that these heads of the world's chief central banks were substantive towers in world finance. They were not. Rather, they were technicians and agents of the dominant investment bankers of their own countries who had raised them up and were perfectly capable of throwing them down. And I would certainly expect that that remains the case today, if not more so. No. So we have, uh, so we have the European central banks. Uh, well, of course, there, now we have one European bank, supposedly. Uh, but they would also be, uh, we have the Rothschild's interest in those countries. Would they have some influence, do you suspect, in England, Germany, and France as well? Uh, I would certainly uh, expect so as the premier, most influential banking family really in history. Uh, as I understand it, they actually, um, 
financed um, both Morgan and uh, Rockefeller in the early days. I understand that they provided the seed money for John D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil fortune. And also, uh, as I believe uh, Jed Griffin documents in his book, uh, Creature from Jekyll Island, they also had the Bank of uh, England bail out J.P. Morgan back in the 19th century when his firm got in trouble. Uh-huh. Uh, so they uh, certainly, uh, you might even say that um, uh, Morgan and Rockefeller were, in a sense, uh, uh, creatures of the Rothschilds. Right. So the whole idea, whole, the whole uh, scheme or scam, if you want to call it that, was to socialize these risks so that the, so that the those 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 wealthy guys could profit during the good times and then not have to worry about the bad times. They just pass it on to the taxpayer, and that's certainly what we've seen happening. Uh, well, we're certainly taking it uh, uh, on the chin through income tax and um, through the uh, price rises caused by the Fed. Every time the Fed you know this this the what uh, Jeb Griffin calls a mandrake mechanism how the when our uh, to pay off our government's deficit the fed just creates money out of nothing it's like they're almost like a counterfeit it would do they just they don't have any assets to back it up they just write out a check to the US treasury for however much uh congress wants mm-hmm. and when they do that they add more money into circulation the value of money goes down you know, I like to give people price comparisons. You know, back in 1962, the tuition at Harvard was uh, $1,500, and a new pair of sneakers was 5 bucks, and the average mm. cost of a home was $12,000, and a postage stamp was $0.04. Cents. And why is that? Why are prices going up? Because the Fed keeps creating money out of nothing. It's their creation. Um, they can uh, they do uh, what, they, what they want with that money because, of course, they've got a guy like Timothy Geithner over at the Treasury Department who's a member of both the Bilderbergers and the Council on Foreign Relations who's going to bail them out all the time. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible, isn't it? Um... The, um, uh, so we've got this. We got this specter of uh, of one world government. I guess that being the common goal of these folks. Now, when we talk about one world, though, we're talking about a big place. Mostly, I think. Well, you know, we've talked about European and American interests. What about Asia? What about China and India? Places like that that appear to be rising powers now. To what extent do you think these same folks can get their tentacles into to control those societies? Uh, I don't doubt that that is all uh, taken care of. And if you look at the uh, membership of the Trilateral Commission, yeah, you will find their uh, Asian group having leading industrialists from places like India and Japan. Um, there's no question that they want everything consolidated. I mentioned before how the um, uh, republics and democracies would be eventually moderated into socialism through you know supreme court decisions and legislations and executive orders we see it happening now with the federalization of healthcare and mm-hmm. the auto industry now on the other side if you want to look at a place like russia it's interesting to pick up a book i don't know if you're familiar with anatoly galitsyn who wrote a book uh, back in 1984 called new lies for old anatoly galitsyn was the highest ranking kgb defector ever to come to this country during the cold war and he came here specifically to uh, warn us of a new strategy, which was false liberalization on the part of the Soviets. In this book, he made over 100 falsifiable uh, predictions, and more than uh, 90, uh, I think about 94% of them have proven to be true. He predicted that the Berlin Wall was going to come down. He predicted that everything would appear to be liberalized in the Soviet Union that uh, East and West Germany would uh, federate, that Europe would federate. But he said that all of this was part of a KGB strategy that ultimately would return 
to uh, Leninism in its worst form was about the words used to describe it. He mm. came here to warn us about it. He predicted all these things, and he was ignored by the media, even though he predicted all the, he predicted uh, the rise to power of. He said a new liberal-looking leader will come to power very soon. Of course, that was Gorbachev before the, before Perestroika. Uh, and Glasnost ever happened. He was talking about it, and nobody paid attention. So wow. just to talk about it, it appears that this merger, uh, you've probably, uh, if you've talked to Ed Griffin in his book, you know about Norman Dodd, mm-hmm. who was investigating uh, foundations with Congress, with the Reese Committee back in the 1950s, and how he went mm-hmm. to the office of the Ford Foundation and spoke to the Ford Foundation head, Rowan Gaither, who bluntly told them that the foundations were working to bring about what he called a comfortable merger between the United States and the Soviet Union. That meant socialization of the United States and an ostensible liberalization on the part of the Soviet Union. So this is being controlled worldwide. There is a global plan. And um, just to step aside and be religious for a moment, anybody uh, acquainted with the book of Revelation knows that it talks about the rise in what is called, we call the end times of a figure called the Beast or the Antichrist. Mm-hmm. It says, quote, He was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark in his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark. Most people are familiar with this, even if they're not uh, Bible believers. But we see that coming to pass. And I often tell people, I say, you know, when the Antichrist comes, if he's coming, uh, he's going to govern the world. And I say, you know... Uh, to govern the world, you have to have a world government. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, what I tell people is when the Antichrist comes, if he's coming, I don't believe he's going to snap his fingers and create uh, a world government hocus-pocus. That world government is being built now. It is satanic in nature. You just look at the actions, the histories, the betrayals of our fighting men in action in Vietnam and places like that. You can't. It's pretty easy to figure out that these are the bad guys. They're mm-hmm. not the good guys. Um, well, you, uh, we we're just, we're really out of time now. It's gone so fast, oh, yes, James. But I, I want to mention in your book, in Chapter 15, you do provide some hope for people. I mean, we've talked about some pretty gloomy things here. And uh, first of all, I'd like to just ask you, uh, where can people get a copy of your book, The Shadows uh, of Power? Well, uh, although they can get it on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, you can get The Shadows of Power through the John Birch Society at um, one 800 Three four two six four nine one. Again, that's eight hundred three four two six four nine one. Or just look at the JB, JBS shop JBS dot org. Okay, another, and, and uh, online, can people uh, follow some uh, of your essays books. there as well? Hmm? Can people? I think you write some things from time to time. Some essays. Oh yes, I write uh, for the New American Magazine, which is uh, the Birch Society's publication. Okay. But do we have time to talk about what we're going to do, or do we need to go a break or end uh, off? Or what we, do we actually we're just you know we're just about out of time. I can probably ask for a couple more minutes. What else would you like to to pass on? If you go ahead, uh, go ahead. I'll. I'll uh, what else would you like to talk? I mean, we could go on for forever here, but we are we are out of time. So, if you've got, can you say whatever? What else? Uh, go ahead. Give, well, do give it be, you a couple oh, man, minutes. There's or, dozens of things we could talk about. Yeah, I know, time, I know. Well, I, I say, guess we'll have to go, have you back. Go ahead and we'll go, go at it longer sometime. But anything else? A parting a parting comment or so before we uh, say goodbye, and we'll have you back sometime soon. Well, uh, let's keep it on a. Uh, okay, let's keep it since we're out of time. Let's keep it on a, a little sense of humor here. I suggest we do the following. I okay. suggest we all buy a DeLorean, get a flux capacitor, set it to 1955, and rev up your car at about 88 miles an hour so you can get the 1.2 gigawatts of energy you need to get, to get back to the year 1955. 
Okay. I say that because I know we need to give a sense of humor. There's a lot of things to be said about what needs to be done. I'm sorry we're out of time. I am, and we'll, let's get back to that, though. We'll have you back sometime in the not-too-distant future. I promise you that. It's fascinating information, I think, very, very valuable information. Uh, so uh, thanks again, James, for be, being with us. Uh, folks, don't go away. We're going to be back in just a few minutes with Harry Fleming. He's the president of Arco Energy, and he'll be with us right after the break. So don't go away. We'll be right back. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Richfield Ventures Corp. is a publicly traded junior mining company on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol RVC. Led by an experienced and dedicated team, Richfield is systematically drilling 25,000 meters of core in 2010 on its Blackwater Gold Project in central British Columbia, where their primary goal is to discover a world-class bulk tonnage gold deposit. With $5 million in treasury and 40 million shares fully diluted, Richfield and its shareholders are poised for a major discovery. Go to richfieldventures.com. For further information, Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by. Dasha Capital is offering the world's first and only corporate stockpile of rare earth minerals, giving investors the ability to participate in the physical ownership of these critical elements without the associated mining and execution risk. Rare earth elements are used in many industries, from aerospace and automotive to high-tech and green tech. Dasha Capital is listed on the TSX.V in Toronto under the symbol DAC and on the OTCQX in the U.S. under symbol DCHAF. Please visit www.dashacapital.com to learn more. That's D-A-C-H-A-Capital.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down. Sliding down, try not to try too hard. It's just a lovely ride. You're listening.
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm here uh, with Harry Fleming. He's the president of Acro Energy. That's a company involved uh, in the solar business, specifically Acro Energy sells and installs solar electricity generating systems, mostly for the residential markets, and the company is primarily focused in California, although it is branching out to a certain extent, I think mostly in the southwest. Acro Energy is traded on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol ART. Uh, I think it also probably trades on the over-the-counter market in the U.S., although I don't have that symbol in front of me. Uh, has a market cap of only about eight point eight million dollars with the twenty seven cent share price at least that's where it was earlier today when I checked welcome uh, Harry back to turning hard times into good times thanks for having me on well it's uh, really good to have you back I, I think we uh, the last time we talked since we talked the last time our our numbers uh, the number of people listening to this show has grown very dramatically probably double what it was then so there's got to be a lot of new listeners could you just tell our our people our listeners a little bit more a little bit about your your story what do you do uh where are you doing it we uh we decided we want to, wanted to get into the solar business and we uh we found that the place to to play was in the integration level which is the uh, the company that designs and installs the systems Clearly, you can't start out as a panel manufacturer. Their margins are so razor thin these days; it's very, very competitive. But somebody has to install these things, and as we've seen, the prices of the panels drop by over half in the last two years. The number of installs has uh, really increased dramatically, especially in the state of California, where we have all of our operations today. And so we um, we really came out with two goals for our shareholders: one. We would be the first public company integrator to um, to show a profit on a quarterly basis, and uh, number two to be the largest uh, residential integrator in the country. And we're we're working towards both goals uh, probably faster than we thought we could. And uh, recently, we just announced our second quarter revenues, which were up substantially over the prior year and substantially over the prior quarter. And we hope to soon have our um, bottom line numbers uh, in the next uh, few days or so. Okay. I noticed that you were cash flow positive during Q1. Uh, are your numbers substantially above Q1 yeah, in we, Q2? In Q1, we did $3.7 million in revenues, and in Q2, we did $5.4 million. Wow. So we're tracking nicely. Our pro forma for the year is $24 million. And in this business, it is somewhat cyclical. And so... Your first two quarters are around 40, 42% of your annual sales. Mm -hmm. The third and fourth quarter, that's where things really begin to heat up with the summer months, and so that's where your bulk of your revenues are. We're certainly uh, on track with uh, about $5 million in backlog as we start the third quarter here. Oh, that sounds very promising. And I would think just uh, you know, assuming that uh, your costs are are somewhat consistent, your margins are somewhat consistent, that you might be looking actually at a profit this year. Oh, absolutely. Our forecast is, I, I believe we're at $1.7 is our forecast for the year. We 
came up with that at the very beginning of the year, and right now, as far we're, we're tracking on the revenues to get there. So we're we're very optimistic we'll hit the numbers. That's that's excellent. Uh, with twenty thirty two million shares outstanding, people can do the math and see what that would amount to on a per share basis. And cash flow, do you uh, how much non uh, non cash items are there in the cost? Um, I mean, is it is it mostly uh, cash cost, or do you have some hidden some some non-cash items that crop up there and knock your income down. Because, you know, as a, as a person with an economics background and as a person who's looking at gold mining companies most of the time, my big concern and what I'm always interested in more than anything is cash flow, cash flow per share. And you've already had a small uh, cash, you know, using EBITDA, a small cash flow positive number. Uh, that is likely to get bigger, I would think. And so on a cash flow basis, do you expect it would be substantially higher than that $1.7 million or... Or not? Uh, yeah, on an EBITDA basis, we're we're tracking at around three million EBITDA. Three million, okay. Two thousand. Three million to uh, thirty-two million shares. So you could be looking maybe closer at ten cents a share in cash flow, uh, operating right. cash flow as defined by EBITDA. And absolutely, that would be our pro forma. So we're, again, we're on track to hit the numbers. Uh, we we forecasted the beginning of the year, and margins, everything are working out nicely. Uh, sales are going very well. We've just uh, just got our license for Arizona, so we're going to open organically in the state of Arizona mm. here in in the month of July. And uh, of course, none of the pro formas include the uh, potential Arizona numbers. Um, so that's uh, I want to ask you. You mentioned that the uh, panel prices are down substantially, fifty percent. That has to be very good news for your business. Why are they? Da- why are the panel prices down? Um, the uh, the competition from China has, has been such that the uh, um, you know the the no name so called no name brands have really driven down the uh, the the name brands and the, from a homeowner's perspective they really don't know Sun Power from Sun Tech from HD Solar there there's literally, literally hundreds of panel manufacturers out there mm-hmm. and so it's become a commodity the price of silicon has dropped through the floor in the last few years. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's definitely a buyer's market. So in the past, you know, we were paying over four dollars a watt mm-hmm. for for the panels. Now we're under two dollars a watt, and that's forecast to continue down to a dollar fifty by the end of the year, and uh, start approaching a dollar in the next year or two. So it, it, it's going to be a good day for solar installers. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the the size of the markets in California and Arizona. I guess those are the two primary states where you're going to be focused on most. How, what what do you think you can do in revenues going forward? I'd like to ask you if you can talk, address that issue first, and then secondly, uh, I'd like to um, uh, I'd like to, to get a handle on the economics from a home owner's perspective. Sure, sure. The, the market in general in California is just south of a billion dollars on the residential basis, and Arizona, by comparison, it, it, it's probably a close. Uh, it's probably the number two state, but it's still around a hundred million. Generally, you're looking at the Phoenix area. So uh, California is by a far margin the number one state. Mm-hmm. There was some activity in New Jersey, but that's, that was just cut out uh, last month. So really, you're looking at California, Arizona as the two largest markets. There's also some activity in New Mexico and Nevada. And in the Northeast in general, states like Pennsylvania and New York have programs that make it worthwhile. And those are probably not going to be organic for us. We'll we'll look for acquisitions to fill those needs. 
Okay. And talk to us a little bit about the economics from a homeowner's perspective. You have a very, a very, very good financing arrangement for uh, people that it really people don't have to put out any of their own capital to have one of these units installed in their house, and they'll save money uh, on their electric bills each, uh, each month. Can you give us a sense of what, how much can people save on average, let's say, uh, homeowners or homeowners who, who have uh, you know, who don't finance the, ins- the, uh, the installment of these themselves. Right. If you pay cash, you're generally going to pay for a system that's, let's, let's say it's $30,000. After rebates and the federal uh, investment tax credit, your net cost is going to be around $15,000. Mm-hmm. Under that scenario, in California, where the rates are high, remember, mm-hmm. you're going to see a payback in four to six years. Mm-hmm. And these are panels that have a warranty of 25 years, but Obviously, they work a lot longer than that. They're still working in space from the 60s. And then on the financing end, if you don't have cash, the 15000 uh, our salesman can walk in and, and uh, put a system in your house the next day. Your bill will, will be reduced by about 15 to 20%. It'll stay flat for 18 years after which you own the system. Mm-hmm. So either way, if you want solar, uh, it, it's now become a, uh, a middle-class product, and that, mm-hmm. that's the key for financing. Yeah, and there's really no reason for people not to have them done. Then they don't. I mean, in one way or another, you come out ahead in California at least by having it done. And, and that's where our salesmen uh, they go into a house, and how do they walk out without a sale? That just doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah. And so things are looking very, very good for you right now. Well, I would think. I, I, I would tell you the biggest problem we have right now is staffing. We have. Uh, open um, ads running in three different cities all the time because we're ramping up so quickly. So, and you, really Well, that's a good problem to have in a, in a oh, market no, it where is. people have a hard time finding jobs. Absolutely. So, so we, we do get a lot of applicants, and we're able to really uh, uh, be selective, and it's, it's, it's a good problem to have, as you said. Well, I would say with a $0.27 cent share price, uh, eight, $8.8 million market cap, uh, with this kind of growth potential, I'm wondering why the market hasn't paid any attention to you yet. Uh, we're just off the radar. I mean, frankly, our competitors, uh, Akina and Real Goods, they're followed by a dozen or so different analysts. Uh, we're new to the game. They've been at it for three or four years, and they, they were well-funded. We came to the game with around... Three three and a half million dollars in funding. We built uh, the fourth largest company in California within 15 months. So wow. we're still new. We are in talks with numerous analysts right now to begin coverage. Good. Of course, that sort of multiples are those companies selling at your well, larger. The, the one that I like is Raymond James is one of the biggest banks that's covering real goods, and their uh, pricing model is 22 times the projected 2011 earnings. Oh so wow! Very aggressive, okay. and you can see why their their valuation is. And what are those? What are those earnings for you guys? Uh, well, our, have our you made earnings, that public? Uh, we're projecting five uh, to six cents uh, a share in 2010. In 2011, we're projecting closer to 20 cents a share. Okay, so people can do the math and and see what uh, what might be a possible share price in the future compared to where you're selling now. We're really out of time. Is there? Tell people where they can track your progress. Uh, if you just go to acroenergies.com, that's our website, or any stock exchange, you can pull up the symbol and it gives everything. It's, it's seamless to, to get a quote on the company. Excellent. Well, thank you very much uh, for being with us again. That's all the time we have for now. We'll have to have you back again to report on your next quarter's progress, perhaps. So uh, thanks Before again, you, folks. Thank don't go away. Much. I'm coming right back uh, with Roger Wiegand. Uh, and my friend uh, and partner, uh, Mark Weaver, will be with me for the wrap-up of today's show. Don't go away. 
bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm here with Mark Weaver. He's my partner on Jay's watch list. And I'm also here with another partner, Roger Wiegand, who's... Uh, writes Trader Tracks, and uh, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, my company, helps Roger distribute his excellent newsletter. As I say, Trader Tracks is the name of that. Welcome to both of you, Mark and Roger. Good to be Hi. here. Uh, Great to be here, Jay. Mark, Thank you. Let's start with you, Mark. I'd like to ask you, uh, there's a couple of companies on Jay's watch list we want to talk about. You just heard from um, Acro Energy. Uh, anything you'd like to add? It's a, it's a company that we've been glad to follow for the last several months. And as you can see from the interview, the, the uh, growth model there is just is, is nothing short of fantastic. Yeah, it looks really good. And what I found really interesting was the fact that he talked about Raymond James is putting a multiple of 22 times uh, cash flow, or, or I'm sorry, 22 times earnings for the sector. And the company is going to be earning five, six cents in, uh, in 2000 this year. So, you know, the share price uh, would seem to have a lot of upside potential. He said the company just isn't really being followed by anybody, but expects to have some analyst coverage soon. And Roger, do you have any? Uh, do you have a chart of that I've one in front chart. of you, Acro Energy? I've got a chart in front of me. The price I got this morning was $0.29. Cents. Uh, the company did open uh, with a big pop. It went up to like a dollar, dollar ten. It was profit-taking, which is a standard move for a new company. It settled back down, but it's now in a, in a mild uptrend. It's in a channel which uh, is running between, uh, let's see, 20, 20 uh Two cents all the way up to uh, sixty cents, and the price right now has leveled off. You're seeing higher lows on the chart, so the the trend is very definitely up. 
Mm-hmm. Price is right now almost right on the 200-day moving average. Mm. And what I would say is that uh, generally the chart looks good. So if you break above that 200 moving average, you'd be very bullish. Oh yes, and we're, and we're right looking there, at right the low now. end of this char- of this trading pattern for this company for the last year or so. The the, uh, the top on this channel, Jay, where there is resistance, is 50 cents, which is a pretty good move. Yeah. I would say that probably sometime with his sales being what he mentioned, and with the Raymond James coverage. I would probably put a forecast on it of around 40 or 50 cents. Yeah, they don't have the coverage yet, but they, they, Raymond James is covering the sector, and I think uh, it, it may very well be that they will cover them. Mark, let me ask you about another on uh, Jay's watch list, Paramount Gold and Silver. Uh, what do you have to tell us about that company? Well, I think the most exciting thing about Paramount Gold has been the proposed acquisition of the sleeper mine in Nevada. That sleeper mine used to be owned by Excal. It certainly was not explored very well during that time, but uh, Paramount's been able to pick up uh, at that at a very decent price, $30 million, and that alone will pay for itself when you take the tailings into consideration. Okay, I can tell you that I'm somewhat familiar with uh, with that company. I uh, Actually, with, that, with the sleeper mine, I should say, I was a banker uh, for Westpac Banking Corp. during that time, and... Uh, uh, also was familiar with the junior that didn't really manage it very well. So I, I would agree with you, Mark. That's a very exciting story. That has that sleeper mine is a sleeper in my view in in name and also uh, you know in concept because it has huge exploration potential. It was one of the richest gold mines in North America that really bailed out and kept uh, Amax Gold alive for a number of years. Roger, do you have that chart in front of you? I've got the chart in front of me on a three-year J. The price Canadian this morning. Or rather, just a few minutes ago, it was a dollar twenty-five. Uh, the price has been channeled, moving sideways between a dollar and a half and two dollars resistance. Uh, with the, g- the general gold and silver market being where it is, uh, it's probably pretty close to a low right now. It could go a little lower to like maybe a dollar, but I suspect not. I think what it'll do is bo- is bottom out here in support, and I would say that uh, technically on this next coming gold rally. Uh, the stock should probably go right back to two dollars. Okay, and one more Ashburton. Uh, they were supposed to be here today to talk to me uh, about their company, but they weren't here. Mark, uh, do you have any comments on Ashburton? Well, Ashburton's an, it, an interesting grassroots play for us. They've got two properties. One's in Deep Creek, Nevada. The other's in in Red Lake. And the Deep Creek property, they're just beginning a, a six to ten uh, drill hole program there. And uh, you're looking at 200-meter uh, depths into an historical resource of just over 500,000 ounces, uh, mm-hmm. indicated and inferred. So we're, we're crossing our fingers on this. I mean, they, you know, they have a great opportunity and, and, and uh, an identified property here and they've actually committed to a drilling program. So there should be some good things coming out of this. Well, indeed. You know, I mentioned in the uh, earlier in the show that it was a $2.7 million market cap only with a half a million ounces already in, in historical resource. I think it's a, you know, it's a real great uh, speculative play. Raj, do you have that chart in front of you? I've got that chart. They've been in a downtrend for a few months, but the stock has settled and supported at $0.05 cents today at 6 Uh They're looking at a resistance and a breakout price of a dime. So I would say the upper channel should be 20 to 25 cents. 
All right. Thank you, Roger. Thank you, Chen. That's all the time we have for, uh, for this week. Um, you can take out a special trial subscription to Chen's letter, my letter, and Roger Wiegand's letter. Call Claudio Bossi at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, or go to our website at miningstocks.com. Next week, we have Addison Wiggins on the show with us, a well-known newsletter writer who and a very strong gold advocate. I'm sure you're going to enjoy Addison's views of the markets. That's all the time we have now. I want to thank my senior executive producer, Tate. Trump, uh, operations manager Ruben Colombe, and Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to my sponsors for making it financially possible. And thanks again to all of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time isn't real.